You're the kind of person who makes a difference at work. So why not work on something that makes a difference? At Zooks, we're looking for collaborative, inquisitive people who can help us achieve our mission. Safer, cleaner, more enjoyable mobility for everyone. Come build the future at Zooks. Find out more at zoox.com slash careers. From earaches to strep tests, there's Minute Clinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's healthier made easier. Visit Minute Clinic at CVS today. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details. Three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Richard Syracusa, and he has recently published a book. The title of the book is Your Eyes or Your Life. The True Story of the Central Park Jogger Rapist, and it was published on June 6, 2019, and it's a very timely book. It uh, concerns uh, some recent documentary that came out on Netflix. He's also written another book about his experiences as a criminal defense attorney. The title of that book is Stranger Than Fiction, a criminal defense attorney's memoir that was published March 8, 2017. But Richard has uh, some excellent first hand information regarding this well-known criminal case that happened in New York. And I read his book. It's an excellent book, very detail-oriented. I learned a lot. And so I'm, I'm really delighted that Richard uh, takes time out. He just had recent surgery, so I'm uh, really glad that he made the show. So, Richard, are you there? I'm here. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for agreeing to the interview. For people who don't know you, Richard Syracusa, can you talk a little bit about your background in the law and how you became interested or how you got involved in this case and, and why you wrote the book. Okay. Uh, I sort of got involved. I uh, was sort of, guy got involved in criminal law, sort of uh, was sort of handed to me. Uh, I was living in New York city, uh, not doing much of anything. It was, I was several years out of college. I went to law school in the evening. And while I was there and when I knocked on the door of the legal aid society, the criminal defense division in Manhattan, and I uh, asked if they needed some kind of paralegal work. You know, I said I was in school. I didn't, I knew nothing about the courts and uh, but I, I wanted to learn. And uh, the uh, the man in the, who was in charge at the time, very, very knowledgeable guy, very wonderful guy named Milton Adler. Uh, uh, he said, sort of looked at me very strangely. He said, we don't have any room for someone like you. Then all of a sudden his eyes lit up and uh, there was a position open for me as a as a paralegal for uh, one of the craziest lawyers I've ever met in my life. He was brilliant, but he was just crazy and neurotic. And I was uh, it was doing post conviction remedies, or we were doing writs of habeas corpus for the uh, inmates out in uh, Rikers Island. I used to go to Rikers Island two and three times uh, a week uh, in their in the 1970s while I was in law school in the evening. Uh, but it was very difficult to satisfy this guy. I did a lot of work for him. Uh, in fact, he said I did the work of four lawyers, but he still never appreciated it. And the slightest thing would go wrong, he'd scream at me. And uh, But I didn't learn a lot uh, going out to Rikers Island. Uh, I talked to a lot of inmates. Uh, I learned about post-conviction remedies. And like I said, this guy was really, he was really brilliant, but very difficult to deal with. He was mercurial, to say the least. Sort of reminds us of, uh, sort of reminds us of our president now. And uh, of course, he was a lot smarter. So I learned a lot, but but after a while, after going to Rikers Island and doing post-conviction uh, work, uh, most of writs of habeas corpus for people, 
for the, the inmates who had uh, certain issues while they were in jail, had warrants outstanding. Every once in a while, we would come into a... Uh, okay, I went to talk to uh, my mercurial leader's uh, mentor. Not my mentor, he's my tormentor. Uh, I was really going crazy with him. You know, every little thing I ever do is wrong. And, and anyway, uh, so he, I got to... Uh, so he transferred me from the Bronx where I was working to Manhattan, where I really started learning about the courts and evidence and things like that. My, my mercurial leader was a brilliant guy, but he knew nothing about evidence. And then, anyway, uh, so I got there. So I, I did two more years there. Um, you know, the lawyers came up to me because even the, the heads of the legal aid society at the time weren't trained properly. And I knew the courts. And so after a while, I got to, uh, I, I got to be the uh, de facto leader even though you know I was a clerk making maybe sixty-eight or $7,000 dollars a year because I knew the courts. Well, they at the end of my term when I finally took the the uh, bar exam, they didn't hire me because of that and because of the uh, the bad word put in for me by my my ex uh, uh, tormentor. And uh, so I went off on my own and went to Washington D.C. Worked there for several years. I used to, I uh, know I. Like I said, I was going to go back and forth on the train and do something in the morning in Washington, come back do something in the, in the afternoon in New York. And that, like I said, I knew I was tired, but the third, I would do it three times a week. Because the third time I would completely sleep on the train, you know, no matter what the time of day it was. And uh, Washington, D.C., I found to be uh, very intolerant of people who didn't work within their system. Um, they also thought I was from, and they, they knew I was from New York City. I'm really from central New York. Right. I talk about it in my books, and uh, uh, but you know you see here in New York, you know nationally think it's New York City. And I really felt as if I was discriminated against. I think they mostly thought they didn't know what my last name meant, Sitarcuso. Uh, it's, it's spelled exactly like the town in Sicily. My family comes from the other side of the island, but you know back there that there was there was there was no uh, ethnicity down in Washington in those days. This is the 70s. It's changed a lot now. But uh, in those days, they couldn't you know, pronounce my name. And so they thought I was Jewish. And, you know, I'm, I said, you know, I, I was saying to myself, I'd walk in there because they said that I knew I was, I was from New York. and said, you know, my ancestors kicked out the Sephardic Jews from Sicily about 500 years ago. You know, I, and I said, you know, why, why, why are you giving me such a hard time? I was held in contempt for no real good reason. Uh, it took me two years to uh, get rid of it on the, in the Court of Appeals. So I knew the handwriting was on the wall. I came back to New York, right. where that's when I was still in law school. And so uh, I'm actually, I started, uh, at this time, I was actually starting as a lawyer. So I just, you know, started, I hung out my shingle, started picking up cases, and, and got into public defense work that way because that was really the only thing I knew. And uh, so I, uh, I had a long career doing that. Uh, I never worked for a public defense agency, we, I worked for a, uh, a, a panel called the Assigned Counsel Plan, and uh, I had a lot of experience, so I, I sort of immediately started taking homicide cases and very serious felony cases, and, uh, and uh, I made a pretty good living that way. Plus, I had a small private practice on the side where I would be retained, uh, but most of it was public defense work, and I wrote it. And uh, so after all those years, uh, I you know, I decided to write a book about that's the stranger than fiction book had a lot of crazy cases. And, uh, so people would probably like to hear about this. Well, as I was doing my notes for, uh, that case, I came across the central park jogger case again. Now I handled the guy who confessed 12 years later. Okay. okay. His name is Matthias Reyes, a psychopath who murdered, uh, a pregnant woman in front of her three kids and plus raped, uh, uh, 
and mutilated the eyes of three other women. He, you know, he was a psychopath, very childish, uh, uh, you know, hard to deal with. In fact, I took over from another guy who had a, he had assaulted. Now, and that, this was an assigned case. This was a public defender case. So I took over the case, and uh, I went through it. I took over around 1990. Uh, the Central Park Jogger case, was. there were parallel cases in front of the same judges, but nobody right. knew that they were connected in any way. Right. At least at that time. Tom, Honorable Thomas Galligan, right? Was the same judge? Yeah, Tom Gall Tom Galligan. That's why when I when I when I saw what I what I could stand with the Netflix series, you know, Tom Galligan would have never tolerated the, the histrionics and the uh you know, the uh overblown uh the melodrama. He would have thrown Elizabeth's letter out of the courtroom and probably had her fired from the DA's department. So it's it's really he no, he was a he was a fair guy, he was very conservative. But he, you know, he would never tolerate something like that. And that's what really got me up. First, what got me upset about it. And because, you know, I've had five or six trials in front of him. Right. I know what he's like. Right. In fact, when he retired, we used to talk on the street together. And anyway. But just going uh, back so to Matthias Reyes, that's the title of your book is Your Eyes Are Your Life, because it was something about him. And we can get into the details. Oh, yeah. Of his well, I'll, 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 I'll go back to okay, my good. first part of the book. Yeah. Uh, when he, uh, he assaulted the women especially the first ones and the second one, he, he assaulted them. Um, he was a prolific rapist. In other words, when he'd rape them, he'd rape them two or three times. And uh, plus sodomize and do a whole bunch of things to them. But then, you know, like a, like a little kid, he didn't want to be identified. So he would ask the women, it's either your eyes or your life. He said, in other words, I'm going to take out your eyes or I'm going to kill you because you can identify me. Uh, as it turned out, he sort of backed out of that situation in the, in the three of the four women he raped, he was known as the upper uh, East side rapist. And he was very notorious during the time uh, of the, uh, when the Central Park Jogger case happened. And, uh, and they, uh, they finally caught him in August of, uh, August 5th, 6th of, of 1989, as he was finishing one of his rape. And he was actually caught by uh, a very uh, uh, observant uh, uh, superintendent of a building on the East side, plus one of the neighbors who, trapped him and uh, captured him from the police. But the other rapes that he did, uh, you know, he would say, your eyes are your life. And uh, he, uh, he would jab the women around the eyes, poke them in the eyes and uh, create, you know, uh, create cuts. And, uh, one woman, he tried to drown in the sink of her, uh, the first rape, he tried to drown her in the sink of her bathroom after he raped her a couple of times. Then he starts slamming her head against the bathtub. But he would always sort of back away from that, uh, you know, really cutting out the women's eyes. You know, the women's were, some would some would beg him, some I you know I need need the eyes for my work. You know I don't want to die. Uh, uh, but he would not kill them. But on June 14th, 1989, uh, he uh, went into he a uh, place in uh, East 97th Street. If you're coming from LaGuardia, you can see the building if the taxi goes uh, in from the east side of Manhattan toward the west side goes along 97th Street, you can see the building. He faked uh, being a, um, uh, a superintendent. No, actually, he faked that time looking for somebody. The woman was there with her three kids. She was uh, she was about six or seven weeks pregnant. She lets them in, then she realizes she made a big mistake. Uh, anyway, the kids are, she puts the kids in the, bed, in the bedroom. He, he rapes her on the bed and her husband. Her husband was a superintendent, but he was away for the afternoon. But she got really upset with him, started screaming at him in Spanish, you know, swearing at him and all that. And then she had a, she had a, she had a knife she brought from the kitchen. 
he disarmed her, disarmed her very quickly and just stabbed her about seven to 10 times. It was very dramatic. And, um, and so she collapsed and the kids are in the, uh, in the other room, heard their mother screaming, they came out. In the meanwhile, he uh, holds onto the knife and leaves uh, a separate way, uh, actually climbing over a fence in the back, which leads, leads out onto uh, like 98th Street, 99th Street to try to get away from there. He actually had difficulty getting out of there, but, uh, but the, she's, uh, she's, she's in the bedroom area, the separate, separate bedroom area. The kids are there, what's, what's the matter, mommy, what's happening? There was six and seven, and there was a baby, five months old, Amanda, okay? Amanda was on the bed. So uh, the mother collapses on the floor uh, where the, her apartment was. It was just below the main lobby. It was the superintendent's apartment. Okay, one of the kids gets out. I don't know how he got out of the door. Carlos or both of them, they go upstairs to the lobby, and they said, uh, and then and they start talking. And this neighbor was coming in, and she looked at the kids there, and she said, she told the cops that the kids look worried, and they're knocking on the door of one of their friends who was right, who was uh, this woman named Harriet Zetchmer. Uh, it was her neighbor, and Harriet, you know, kept her ear to the door after she closed it. Then she walked outside and. Uh, uh, you know, she starts talking to the kids and the kids, my mommy's hurt. Says my mommy's hurt. So uh, I think that they sort of described what happened to as best they could. Like I said, they're six and seven. And so Harriet Zeschner calls the uh, EMS. But by that time, EMS was already on the way because the woman, Lourdes Gonzalez, the one who was stabbed, actually called them as she was bleeding all over the place from her, her basement, you know, her apartment telephone. Uh, as, uh, as, the neighbor was Harriet was calling the police. The door to the elevator opens, and it's Lourdes Gonzalez stabbed and bleeding to death, and she collapses on the floor in the lobby. Uh, by that time, the EMS people are there, uh, and they come in. And the two two men come in. Uh, one of them asks a guy named Vincent Gatto, ask her, ask her, you know, who did this to her? You know, were you stabbed and all this? Now she could gargle. She just gasps, "My baby." my baby and he's, he's looking around there's no baby around so little carlos comes up and says my sister's downstairs in the uh in the basement you know and we're worried about i'm worried about her so they couldn't get back downstairs to the elevator because they, the elevator had a key and so the elevator wouldn't move to go back down to the basement so the ems worker goes outside uh with carlos little kid and the door to the basement uh to the basement apartment is actually locked was locked by my client, I think, when he left. And so the EMS worker, and, you know, and Carlos is crying, and I'm worried about my sister. The baby's five months old, right? right. And so he kicks in the door, and he goes into the apartment. He's a, a, a mass bloody scene. And uh, the baby's okay. The baby's on the uh, bed. So the EMS worker grabs the baby, goes upstairs. By that time, his, uh, his partner had put mass pants on uh, uh, Lourdes Gonzalez. That's to increase the pressure because... She practically had no pulse, and she was practically bled out on the floor. And so what happened was that they immediately took her to the hospital, but they took the baby also. The baby had some blood on her, and they had to check out the baby also. And uh, Gonzalo, Lourdes Gonzalez, the mother, lasted for about an hour and a half, and she was pronounced dead about seven. The baby was, uh, was okay. Uh, but, right. you know, there was blood all over the floor. You know, he, the, the EMS worker really had to, look, had, to, had to think fast. He didn't know whether to help. Uh, Lourdes Gonzalez bleeding to death on the floor in the lobby, but he knew he had to go downstairs to check out with the baby because the baby was only five months old. 
Right. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah. But that wasn't his only. That wasn't his only rape. There was another one that he. There was an attempted rape. Uh, you talk about. Oh Corbett yeah, yeah, Feltz. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the the next the one that we, I, I made the connection, but he had the first one was the one where he banged the head against her head against the 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 uh, bathtub and tried to drown her. The, the second one was actually the murder. The third one was on July 19th, where you make the connection, where I made the connection with the Central Park Five. He uh, raped a woman, uh, and then after raping her, he said he was going to call 911 to help her, which he did. Incredibly, I got the recording after he left the apartment, but he tied her up in a certain way. He, he also jabbed at her eyes and tried to take out her eyesight, but he didn't actually do it. And uh, she got to a window and started screaming out the window somehow. But he tied her up in a very signature type of way, okay? And uh, it was exactly the same way the Central Park jogger was tied up when the when the police found her back in the April. Now this is uh, July of, of 1989. Uh, the Central Park jogger case happened April 19, 1989. Right. Now we don't know there's any connection here between my client. He never told me nothing, okay? But. Uh, but that woman was tied up in the same way. Not only that, he said he was with a guy named Steve, who, who when he went into that apartment, a guy named Steve helped him. They, they looked out for this woman. My guy followed, and his MO was to follow them, to push him in uh, to the doorway or go up in the elevator with him and attack him, pretend he was part of the building itself. And, but this guy, Steve, was on the outside, sort of, and when my client went into the apartment, raped the woman and brutalized her, Steve was on the outside in the stairway. And also he got hold of a knife from this guy, Steve. He kept saying, Steve, and he described Steve perfectly, like curly hair, uh, uh, the uh, uh, his, his complexion, right. very light complexion. Scar uh, on his cheek. Dark eyes. Distinctive huh? scar on the right side of his cheek, on the right cheek. Well, it wasn't, disti- it wasn't sort of distinctive, but my client described was, it, was, it was a scar. Right. And he was, it was shorter that he was and but the, the the really distinctive thing was the hairstyle he said he had dead hair and dead hair means it was in its natural state which means it was curly okay and it was really curly and uh and so i, I was i'm looking at this stuff and i say this is a very detailed description this is something you know he couldn't have made up out of his head not only that his this guy's actions that he said he did with him when he was in the rape of july 19th also sounded very coherent very logical very you know put together it wasn't something you know you would make up like uh i know a guy named jose he lives uptown i don't know where you know type of thing right. he used to meet on a, a basketball court on the east side he used, and it turns out that he used to do robberies with this guy steve uh prior to july 1989 uh and uh and steve told him that he was 23 years old okay uh but he but he described this guy steve perfectly and they said these do robberies and they robbed other people because he, he started confessing to everything he did all right. Uh, he described this kid with the curly hair, the scar, the, the, the complexion of the skin, all that. And uh, uh, at the end of the uh, at, at the end of the uh, interrogation, he tells the interrogator, "No, it's it's all a lie. I didn't. No, I, there was no guy named Steve. Actually, there was a guy named Steve, but he was waiting for me on the corner. He wasn't part of the rape or anything like that. He was waiting for me on the corner because I owed him money. And I met him afterwards. In fact, there was Steve or." He said someone named Dave, a name Dave popped up, but I don't know where that came from. It was probably Steve who went to the uh, ATM machine because he got the code from the woman uh, who he, he had tied up. And it was Steve because my guy was illiterate. He could barely write his name. I had right. to read everything to him at that time. 
you couldn't read it. You couldn't read English or Spanish. And he was, and, I mean, uh, he had, can you talk a little bit of, about Matthias Reyes's ba- uh, troubled background? Troubled to say the least. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, his troubled background goes back to uh, when he was a kid. His mother was schizophrenic. They came from a small uh, uh, city in uh, Puerto Rico. The father and the mother had relationships with the children with other people. Uh, the mother was schizophrenic and she used to uh, go around the village and scream uh, and uh, people would sort of stay away from her because they knew what she was like. And uh, he, he had a, and he really wasn't educated at all. So at one point his mother decides to go back to New York uh, and uh, supposedly sells him. And I got this from his aunt, Reyes' aunt, who I talked to many years ago, uh, uh, that the father bought Gave the money, uh, gave money to his wife or his girlfriend at the time. I, th- I think they were married. I'm not sure, but uh, but she was going to New York. She was going to live in New York, and the father was going to live in Puerto Rico. So he bought Matthias from the mother. The mother goes to New York, and Matthias spends uh, a few years with him. And the guy was uh, his father was an itinerant laborer and a grave robber, and uh, he, uh, you know, so he never got educated. Didn't want to go to school there. And his father really made really made no great effort to do that. And anyway, he, and, uh, uh, Reyes, yeah, like you said, one of his IQ readings was seventy-one, so he was like, yeah, one point over. Yeah, he was, he was borderline. Yeah, yeah, right on the border. But yeah. yeah, but 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 he was a psychopath, and the psychopaths can be very charming. They know how to charm people. They know how to get around things. You know, they're very devious. And so, to me, that seventy-one was probably because he couldn't read and write. I thought he was more intelligent than that. But uh, you know, just in talking to just just his verbiage, where he talked, even though he couldn't read, and so, but but that 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 is the mo of a psychopath. You know, they they sort of charm you, then all of a sudden you turn your back and they got you. You know, and and, and, and there was allegations that he raped his own mother. Is that correct? In 1985. So yeah, like well, yeah, he he goes he goes to New York. He tries to get in school. Uh, he doesn't want to go to school because he can't read. They have all sorts of problems with him. Even the mother tried to. The mother's living with another guy was a drug addict in New York. He's living with them. Now he's like 13, 14 years old. He keeps going back and forth to Puerto Rico. The father doesn't want him educated. But uh, the uh, uh, the time comes when he's like growing up. And when he was in New York, there was a couple of years there. We didn't serve a connection. Well, I, I didn't know exactly what, what had happened to him. But he did actually, he called it the accident. He raped his own mother. And uh, uh, during that period of time that was significant, he had jumped from a bridge in Puerto Rico and uh, probably cracked a couple of vertebrae in his neck. And he was in the hospital for three months in this halo type of outfit uh, with his neck very still. Uh, and uh, that caused nerve damage in his neck. And uh, as soon as he got out, he took off that thing he had and jumped off the bridge again. But this time he wasn't injured because he wanted to prove to himself he could do it. Uh, anyways, so he's injured that way. He comes back to New York. Uh, the father is lost somehow. I don't know what happened to him. And he's got a he's got an aunt here near the mother. The mother still, but the mother at this time uh, moves with a new man. They went to either Rhode Island or Boston. I think it was Rhode Island. He said it was Boston. So he's like on the street by himself. And I don't think he had much contact with his aunt. And he keeps talking about a grandmother, but I never knew where the grandmother was. He he was making these comments. Uh, he, he was reluctant to confess because he thought his grandmother would get upset, but I never knew where the grandmother was. I knew and, where the aunt was, but the aunt probably didn't want anything to do with him. And he was and finally, the last time his mother's... Right, he, was, he was finally arrested August 5th, right? So 
Yeah, and he's finally arrested August 5th. Gotcha. Yeah, and uh, so he starts talking. He starts talking about this guy, Steve, and all that. And so uh, uh, and then yeah, I'd, I'd go to the first uh, DNA hearing in New York County. I had to call up Peter Sheck, who uh, started the Innocence Project, because they had the kite. They had the first case up in the Bronx to try to get a uh, expert witness and all that. So right. the case went on, and, and at the last moment, uh, we, were, we were set for trial. There was hundreds of jurors in the uh, courtroom, Tom Gallagher's courtroom, and um, I, and I, and I had my own expert, and my expert said, yeah, we can get it down to a 500 to 1 uh, ratio that it could have happened by chance, but since there's four matches, it would be 500 to the fourth power, which is an astronomical number, which, you know, which is really going to sink you. As it turned out, the DA didn't really look at it that way at the hearings at any event. So uh, so I told him, I said, listen, you know, if you get convicted after a trial, you're going to do 75 years of life and you're going to die in prison. If you take the plea, because the district attorney, P. Casolaro, didn't want the kids to come in to testify and didn't want the victims to come in and testify, having to face them again. So I gave him a plea deal of 33 and 30 years to life, okay? Which okay. means, which means he's probably eligible for parole in around 2023. This is like 19. He was in jail since 1989. Uh, this is like 1991 now. Gotcha. And so, uh, uh, as we're standing there, uh, the the jury the uh, the jury pulled parts like the Red Sea. And this little guy in a yellow cabana shirt comes walking up the aisle, and my guy turns to me and says, "That's my father. Can I talk to him?" So, Gallican clears the courtroom and goes over, talks to his father about 10 minutes. Myself and the district attorney stand aside. Then as, when the conference is over, of course, the, the, the court officers are all around him, says, I'll take the plea. I'll plead guilty. So he did. He pled guilty, and um, he was promised a 33 to 30 years to life. And um, that, that was the first time I really sort of noticed his uh, psychopathy. He, he looks at me, he looks at me, you're happy I pled now? He goes, like, are you happy I pled? I said, you know, it's your decision. You know, you might get out of jail this way. The other way, you've never gotten out of jail. So um, So anyway case adjourned for two or three weeks we came in for for um for sentencing i actually bought him some candy and stuff to you know to soothe, try to soothe them um and as i walked into the court there were like seven or eight court officers i said well this is you know the guy isn't that big but anyway, he starts trouble you know three or four could do the job well anyway i i snuck him the candy in the back he comes out and uh the district attorney gives a long statement and then uh, then i i said something like uh my my, my uh, client's incredibly sorry about what he did, uh, and like that. Then all of a sudden, it's his turn to stand up and say something. So he stands up, and I'm right next to him. I'm standing to his right. Now, he's left-handed. I'm standing to his right, and as he stood up, he says, fucking judge. But the court reporter didn't hear that. And once I heard that, I pretty much knew what was going to happen. But I jammed myself in with the chair and the table. And he says, you know, I, I didn't do nothing. There was somebody else there with me. And these lawyers that you give, and he turned with his right hand to get more torque on his punch because I'm standing to, to his right, and, and and gave me a split second to duck my head. But he did hit me in the forehead with a hard punch. It really didn't hurt all that much, but it did knock me over the table, and I fell over the table on the floor. And as I was on the floor, he was coming at me again. That was the problem, and I I saw the look of the devil on his face, and um, and and so he was. He came at me again, but by this time there were six or seven court officers on him and pulled him as he was coming toward me, pulled him off of me, and he they had him spread eagled, carried him. He was, last time I saw him, he was screaming and yelling, and there were like 60 people in the audience, reporters, a couple of victims, the the, the the woman who got murdered, her family, and everyone was just sort of gasping. And I was still on the floor sort of 
looking up at him, and they just pulled him uh, uh, out of there, and, and the judge sentenced him in absentia. He gave a little speech about what a dangerous person this guy was. And like I said, I thought that was the end. I'm there, I would never, ever see him again. He was sentenced. Uh, the welt on my forehead cleared up in a little while, and I went out about my business. Uh, and at the, at the next year, there was the Central Park Jagger Trail. I really knew nothing about it. Uh, you know, in fact, I thought Steve Lopez was one of the five. He wasn't. Uh, then as I, uh, uh, as I uh, completed, uh, as I started doing my memoir, I, I was going to put Matthias Therese's case on it. Then I discovered this audio tape, which I had totally forgotten about. And it was also a, 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 a um, transcription of what he said. And he started talking about this guy, Steve. So I said to myself, and I was just going to put him as, as one of the stories. Then I began to go, go over the file. The file was like going on with more than 25 years old. All the pages were yellow. I had forgotten about it. Um, I'm looking and says, wow, this is something. But in the meantime, uh, in 2002, he started confessing that he was the one that raped the Central Park Jagger, and he did it alone, okay? Right. And then they decided. This Halloween, No Cap presents a pay-per-view event like nothing you've ever seen. Travis Barker's House of Horrors. Featuring performances by Machine Gun Kelly, Avril Lavigne, Black Bear, special guest Mark Hoppus, Ian Dior, Jaden Hostler, and more. October 28th. Get your tickets now. NoCapShows.com. I had to run my, his DNA 12 years late, 11 years late. Why they didn't do it when I had the case, it would have changed. They didn't. I, I, have, I, I know what. I pretty much know what the reason was, but anyway, uh, I was talking to this court, this uh, uh, New York Times reporter. Uh, he's a senior court reporter. William Rushbaum. Was it William Rushbaum? Rushbaum. Yeah, Rushbaum. yeah. And I, I, and I said, you know, he said, did you when he called me? This is 2002. You, did you represent Matthias Reyes? So yes, I did. But the last time I saw him, I was on my ground, look, on the ground, looking up at him. And we had sort of a laugh about that. Thought, well, he's confessing to raping the Central Park jogger. Not only that, they decided to run his uh, DNA, and it was only his DNA that was found. I think it was found on her and then on a set of socks. Uh, and uh, he's saying that he did it by himself. So I was on television. I was an interview by the magazines. I said, yeah, he's perfectly capable of doing this by himself. He's a psychopath. There's no, no, there, you know, there, there was no question in my mind that if he wanted to do it by himself, he could. So I never really gave it another thought until several years later when I was doing the, my notes for the memoir, I came across this audio tape. Now I had shown, I, I had a granted an interview to Sarah Burns, Ken Burns' daughter, which was a mistake, because I thought she really knew what she was doing. You know, I thought she'd be on. She, she had an agenda also. Plus, she didn't really have the experience. She was in way over her head in terms of experience within the criminal justice system. I think she was a, 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 a paralegal for one of the uh, court, uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the partnerships that actually handled the civil case. Right, settled, so, well, which, she which was, was she was biased because she was when eventually the the Central Park Five, as they were called, wanted to sue civil. Yeah, well, she, well, she was doing the them. yeah. She was doing the book, right? But you know, I thought you know, I, I you know, you know, I, in fact, I asked her a stupid question. I said, "Are you related to Ken Burns?" She go, "Yeah, she, he's my father." You know, right? So, and so uh, I was talking to her, but at the end, I, I said, "You know, I had an uncle. He had just Burns had just done this thing in World War Two. I said, I, haven't, I, had, I had an uncle that actually fought at Guadalcanal, which is true. I said, tell your father and my uncle, you know, 
my uncle had died by then, but it would have enjoyed it very much because, uh, you know, he really served in the Pacific Theater. She sort of laughed at me, you know. And I, I looked at her and it was sort of like, you know, who, why would I talk to my famous father about that, someone like you? And I looked at it and I said, oh, I made a mistake with this. But anyway, I, I, I cooperated with her. I regret doing that. She was totally one-sided, didn't do any research. And, and, and you know, so right, when I read that the book. Was, that wasn't even done because she didn't do just a book. She did a documentary as well, correct? Oh, yeah, the documentary was even worse. In fact, I had a little online fight with her. I said, you know, why didn't you talk to me? You know, the linchpin of your whole operation was my client. And you give him a, a, a four-second walkthrough of the whole thing. So uh, anyway, uh, that was the last I had uh, contacted with her. But she, I mean, the so, thing is, is that that became kind of a cause celeb that they turned the Central Park Five. Oh, a cause celeb. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they sat down. Oh, and yeah, I think that, 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 that became the story. That became the narrative. Right. Oh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, she went into, a, you know, the poor kids, uh, you know, uh, that, that little famous line from West Side Story, they're depraved because they're deprived type of thing. You know, and uh, you know, and I said, you know, that wasn't what I talked to you about. You know, I said, you know, I, I got a, I got like a page and a half in her book. It was it was accurate what I said, but it wasn't really what I talked to her about. And I, I'm saying to myself, what the, you know, what the hell is going on? A, a, a four second walkthrough with my client and everything else. Concentrate on those poor kids who uh, who had who were uh, practically beaten up by the police, had their wills overborne by the police. Put police put words in their mouth and all right, this coercion, that right? It. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, also so it, the not it. the the innocence idea is that because Reyes confessed, it mean and he he took full responsibility. It means that the Central Park Five were not involved, even though there were other events that night that involved uh, oh, action. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean they they readily admitted to hitting like a jargoning John Locke over the head with a metal pipe. I remember uh, on, on, on uh, one of the radio stations in New York, uh, this, uh, it said, oh, they were just engaged in a little mischief. I tried to call in and said, no, no, that's felony assault. You know, that could have been, you know, you know what a subdural hematoma is? You know, bleeding on the brain. That could have happened. The guy was, the guy named John Lobby, he was in a hotel, in a hotel a hospital for about uh, overnight, then they determined there was nothing wrong with him. Plus, they beat up another jogger, and they kicked the hell out of a homeless guy, oh, took okay. his food, called him the bum. You know, right. but somehow this thing happened in a vacuum. Okay, they weren't there, and they and then then I started reading over their statements. Then when I decided I was going to do a book about it. I started reading over the statements. I said, and I've heard these statements before from kids. Yeah, you know, they're there, they see it, but it's not them, or they didn't do a lot. It was somebody else. Sounds like a fourteen or fifteen year old kid would say. Okay, right. And so, uh, so so I got into it, and uh, I started looking. I said, and I was sort of stuck in my gut because I've heard hundreds of those statements from kids. I said, you know, they had a ring of truth about them. The cops couldn't have, the cops couldn't have possibly told them to say all that stuff. And what was overbearing in all of this was that she was in a coma for nine or ten days. The real jogger. And the cops are taking all these statements, you know, from the kids and all that. And how did they know what she was going to say when she woke up? You know, they would have lost their job. They would look like absolute fools. You know, dealing with 13, 14, and 15-year-old kids. There were 37 of them. And, you know, I'm sure they would at least been demoted, if not fired. Because, you know, because then it would have been pretty obvious what the cops are doing in order to get the confessions out of them. Right. And plus, when, the, when you're dealing with 13, 14, 15 year old kids, and the parents have to be there. All right. No, no cop in his right mind would start talking to a kid who says he's 13, 14, 15 without calling up the parents. The parents could have stopped that interrogation, say, 
don't talk to my kid anymore. No more. That's it. And the cops would have had to stop. Right. Plus, if the cops did something like that, any judge, the most conservative judges, would have been obliged to suppress all that evidence. Right. But the you know, thing uh, is, is those uh, are all videotapes. So you can see the videotape confession with the kids, at least Richardson and Anton McRae and yeah. Tron. Those are there. And the parents are right there and they're talking. And yeah, Richardson's parents, talking parents, about a scratch. You know, and, and, yeah. And I, I, I never quite understood, like, you know... Yeah, the whole thing could have been blown up in the cop's face if she woke up. No, no, it was just only my client, Matthias face, but she didn't remember anything. That was the problem. Plus, they didn't run my client's uh, DNA. Plus, there was one cop in particular who was involved with my client, told him uh, he was sexually assaulted because they, they suspected my client of the murder of Lourdes Gonzalez, but he didn't uh, confess to it right away. So they called in a guy named Mike Sheehan, who was the detective's detective. He had a show on... Uh, on, a, on a PIX, it was the local uh, channel here, Warner Cable's uh, channel here. And he was like, and the, the detective's detective. And he should have known or should have realized because he knew that he'd done his homework, how the Central Park jogger was tied up and how the victim on July 19th, my client raped and where the guy Steve was with him, uh, they were tied up in exactly the same way. It's, he, you know, some kind of like prayer, he, he, like front of the body yeah. prayer kind of posture, right? Yeah, yeah, the same thing. No, no, she, he was she. He tied them up in sort of like a prayer type fashion, fashion, uh, wrapping uh, uh, with the, the, the jogger with a, a, a towel around her neck and and put the his his hands her hands in front of her legs and tied her up that way so she couldn't move. Did the same thing with the woman on July nineteenth. Right. Uh, and, you know, someone should have saw it. Right, but now you it, also, it, it, t- you kind of, in your book, I think you successfully took apart the whole notion that Reyes did it because you knew your client had had a neck injury, and according to, oh, yeah. the, right, the, according to the solo perpetrator theory, that means that Reyes had to have chased down the Central Park jogger, then knocked her out, and then dragged her, which was which was admitted as fact that like three city blocks, like a hundred yards or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But 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 the story you told was even more preposterous. I'm a runner. Okay. That's why I had my spine surgery. Uh, I finally wore out after all these years. But you know, I've run nearly a hundred marathons. Plus, this would have been my 29th consecutive New York City marathon. Plus, I went to a college that used to supply the Olympic team. I went awesome. to college, I went to Villanova in the early 60s where they had the world's fastest human, great runners, incredible runners. And they were friends of mine, and I couldn't run with them, of course. But I used to work out you know, on a weekend every once in a while, and we would talk. And I learned a lot of technique from them. That's why I'm, I'm at my age, I'm still able to, you know, continue to run as I do. I'm slow, but I can still, I can, I can still run. Awesome. And then I, I'm saying to myself, and he, he starts saying, he, he sees her running. Now she runs eight minute miles. Okay, now she's flying. She's running fast. You ever seen anyone? I used to do it 20 years ago. Now you're you're really moving, eight minute miles. You know, and he says he sees her. Then he, you know, he he formulates what he's going to do. And I'm saying to myself, well, what's she doing? Is she standing still? He's standing still. She's running. And he, and so he, he says he gets up behind her. He, he's, he's, several, he's yards behind her. He starts zigzagging behind her. Absolutely preposterous. She would have been out of sight if she was running eight-minute miles, which she could do. She's in great shape. She would have been out of sight in 10 seconds or less. No way in the world. That, not only that, he could have caught her. Not only that, he picks up a stick, which also slows you down. Okay, because he's carrying a stick in his arm. He says he came up from behind. He caught her zigzagging. She's running in a straight line. Okay, I said to myself, I mean, this, this isn't right. You know, I mean, 
you know, from my, my own my own knowledge, because I know a lot about running. I said, not only that, even if you didn't know a lot about running, that's preposterous. The way she ran, and, and uh, you know how fast she ran. So then the, the second thing was, he first said, I know I, I dragged her. Then he then he changed the story, but I knew he couldn't have dragged her because he had the neurological impairment in his neck. Then he says uh, he attacked her close to the road where she was, and then she gets up. She's naked from and she's barefooted and she gets up and she runs the three city blocks to the point of the final attack. Right. Now she's, she has traumatic brain injury. All right. Now she's running. And I, and I said to myself, well, what happened to his Olympic speed? Why couldn't he catch her? You know, he's running after, but that's how she got the three city blocks. All right. And then yeah, at the end of that, she's got a traumatic brain injury. He decides to have a rational conversation with her by saying that, where do you live? I'm going to burglarize your apartment. Cause that, that was his MO besides raping. He was in there to, all those burglaries and race. He wanted to find money. That was his MO. And uh, I say to myself, absolutely absurd, totally absurd. How could the district attorney's office even believe something like this? But that's what they wrote in their affidavit as to why he was credible. And I, and I really started laughing to myself when I first read it, when I, when I you know, do research for the book. It was her 58 page affidavit dismissing our, the legal reasons she dismissed the, the case. That, that was proper because had they had the DNA evidence back in 1991, 1991, they had the trials, it probably would have changed the verdicts no matter what. You know, it was another guy or it was my client. And I'm sure I would have been in there negotiating with the district attorneys to give them the best deal possible. Uh, you know, and I'm sure my client would have thrown everybody else under the bus. But one of the other main reasons is they couldn't make the connection between the Central Park Five and Matthias Reyes. Right. And I looked at my, I look at this little tape and I said, I said, there's a connection. It's got to be Steve Lopez. And so one day, I was going through Getty Images with a friend of mine. I saw that picture, which is picture number two in the book, with the curly hair and everything. I said, this is unbelievable. That's Steve Lopez. And there's no question it's Steve Lopez. Plus, I got the third question, the third one, when he was older. I couldn't dig up anyone. I couldn't find one of uh, the right side of his face, a close-up. Um, by that time, he had grown, you know, he was maturing. He had a full beard. And his head was shaved. Uh, but anyway... But he had these two little marks on it, which could have been what Reyes was talking about. But I, but I was beyond that. It, was, it, was, it had to be uh, uh, Steve Lopez. But then I said to myself, well, listen, Lopez was in jail. He was in Spofford. And, and Lopez was, was one of the most obnoxious of the, of the ones. I'm sure Reynolds probably talked to you about that. Uh, he's the most obnoxious. He was sort of the leader of the group. Now, he's only 14 going on 50 now, but he looks old. So, uh, so I'm, I said to myself, geez, you know. Uh, it, it's got to be, but he was in jail. Then I began to think back. In those days, that, the whole Spofford used to give furloughs to those kids, all right, where they would go back home as long as they came back after two or three days. And that was, and I was talking to a friend of mine just a couple of weeks ago. That was the whole idea of Spofford. Now, because they were 13, 14, 15-year-old kids, they didn't want to keep them in jail. They didn't want them to go back home to the family. So there was a distinct possibility that the, the, the Steve he was talking about could have been Steve Lopez. In fact, the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced because of the detailed way my client described his actions, Steve's actions, the way Steve looked. Okay. Now there was a good possibility. He was on the street. Then when I went back to Spofford, because Lopez, uh, you know, you read in the book also that Lopez was the most, uh, uh, how can I put it? Was the most mature or the most uh, sophisticated of the, the, of the kids are talking because he never confessed. He kept his mouth shut. That's the only reason why he wasn't uh, uh, indicted for the rape. 
because all the other kids said he was one of the most vicious attackers. Him, Richardson, and Antron McCray were the vicious attackers. Uh, you know, he, Lopez was was said by Kerry Wise and others that you no, know, he starts beating her up, started punching her when she was on the ground because she kept screaming. He kept saying, "Shut up, bitch! Shut up, bitch!" And then when uh, it was all over with, he was he was the one that suggested that they kill her to cover up his uh, his their, their trap. Well try uh try to cover up uh, their actions like that and uh i'm saying to myself this you know plus there's all stuff the the um they did they did the uh armstrong report where the armstrong had had access to all this, this these notes and the armstrong report wasn't written until like 2003 and i'm saying to myself they found all these notes what would the new plant the police plan all these notes to be found 12 years later you know they, they, they interviewed uh civilian witnesses or the, or the kids made um, uh, uh, confessions to. Plus, there was a woman named a young girl named Melanie Jackson, who uh, Carrie Wise had called her brother because it was a friend. And she she gets on the phone and says, uh, "Did you really do that thing?" And and Carrie Wise says something like, "Well, no, I only did a little bit. They only grabbed the lady's tits." But he put himself there, and she was she was a you know, she was a totally civilian witness, right. and she thought she she came in as a witness. She thought she was going to help him, but you know what? She, what her testimony did was put him there. Right, no, but the, Arms, thought, the because... Armstrong report itself said that there was consistency that ran through all of the different people who were involved. That thing that she was oh, jogging, yeah. they knocked her down, they drag her. Yeah, several yep. assailants, people, some yep. people oh, held yeah. her arms and legs. So they covered. I mean, it yep. was all the same. There was similar stuff. Nobody can actually yeah, plus, recite yeah. everything in the same manner. They wouldn't do. Yeah, that, but the plus, but, you know, one of the one of the one of the most uh, sophomore things of. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Sarah Burns' thing was they try to actually give a timeline, you know, to when these things happen. Now there was 37 kids in the park that night, and everybody's doing, you know, they split up, so you don't know who did what to whom and what time. Plus, you don't really know how long it took the jogger to go from like York Avenue way on the east side of Manhattan, halfway across Manhattan, get into Central Park, and then by that time she, you know, she's moving. And uh, the place where she goes in is like 102nd Street. There is a hill there. And during the New York City Marathon, it's a real killer. It's a short hill, but at, at mile 23, it's a real killer, believe me. And anyway, they've taken it out of the uh, marathon now. Uh, you you, you go in like 10 blocks further south. But anyway, uh, and I said, the only way it could have happened is that, that she ran into them. And Carrie Wise gave a good description of saying that when she was running, she saw Raymond Santana to the left of her and was sprinting along next to her and she got scared and, and guess who's in front ready to catch her? Steve Lopez. Santana and Lopez were buddies from the Schomburg houses. Uh, you know, the whole thing fit because that's, that's where my client lived. They had these, these basketball courts, even though my client uh, didn't know Lopez's last name. And, you know, and there's one, uh, another reporter said to me, why would, why would, Maybe, uh, Matthias Reyes to choose a 14-year-old kid as a, a as a partner in crime, you know, sticking up you know, pizza delivery guys and stuff like that. Because uh, Lopez told him he was 23, he looked older. And my client didn't have the mental capacity to, to, dis, to distinguish that, okay? And so that's why he did it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure my client was very uh, surprised. So anyway, they uh, and, and plus there was a fight at Rikers Island between Kerry Wise and my client, which is uh, which happened around, I think it was July, August of 1990. Um, Wise may have been already sentenced at that time, but they recognized each other. At least Wise recognized him. It was this ostensibly a fight over a TV station or something like that in the, in the rec hall. 
and they had a fight. They had, they were broken up. Well, you know that was, uh, you know, in 1990. But when they got to my hometown prison, they got to Auburn prison. I was born and raised in Auburn. They used to play handball against the wall, <laughs> against the giant wall. It's right out of a James Cagney movie. That, that place takes up the center of the town. Anyway, they're in Auburn prison, and he says he has a qualm of conscience about, you know, this guy's still in jail, and I really raped his Central Park jogger. But all he had to do was keep his mouth shut, because if Kerry Wise didn't know who he was, then he didn't know, uh, uh, you know, why would, why would he confess? Why would he feel bad? Wise would have never known the difference. Wise would have never been the wiser. Excuse me for the pun. Right. But anyway, uh, uh, so, but he said, oh, no, I did this because I had a con. And I, I said, I said, I said, right, I said, you're a psychopath, right? You know, you don't have a conscience. You know, you did this. So the only way it could have happened probably is what, is what was alluded to in the Armstrong report that, uh, that at that time, Kerry Wise was a blood, okay? And then the underground, right, Wise knew who Reyes was when Reyes got to Auburn prison, okay? And, and that's why, and he was threatened, and that's why uh, Reyes came forward. Because, I mean, the, 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 the story was totally, was not thought out at all. It was like a, it was a story a child would tell, you know, uh, who disobeyed his mother or father or something like that. I mean, it was really foolish. Everything he said made no sense at all. And so I'm reading this for the first time. I said, I can't believe this. <laughs> they believed all this stuff. And, uh, and, they, you know, and then they, they settled. Right, they settled so right away, right when de Blasio became mayor, settled for 41 mil and just went yeah. with the Reyes. And now, what are your thoughts about this Now They See Us, this new Netflix documentary? Well, you know, I, you know it, my thought about it is this. Uh, the man who orchestrated all of this was L. Sharpton. L. Sharpton was a was a uh, known informant for the FBI. Now I've handled a lot of informants, okay? Because it's my job to do it, try to get him a better deal, all that. I, you know, I handled it. I did it on a professional basis, but I never liked any one of them. And so, uh, so now this guy he, he postures himself as a revenant. I don't know if he got a degree anywhere, and now, now he controls everything. So I, and I, when I first talked to Eric uh, Reynolds, I said, yeah, you know, it, it could be a political thing. But, you know, now I became more and more convinced that, you know, it was de Blasio told him to settle when he came into office because he wanted to get the black vote or was getting the black vote, wanted to get the black vote for a second term. I, now, they settled in about 2015. I don't, de Blasio, I guess de Blasio, yeah, he was in his first term. And no, um, I think they settled within uh, 45 days of de Blasio entering office. So it was yeah, like, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, there are oh, other yeah. massive settlements that, as well. Yeah, yeah. So no, no as, as an aside, I run in Riverside Park on the far west side next to the Hudson River. And I used to pass this federal judge all the time. Her name is Deborah Bass. Now she was the one who was handling the case. Now that case was in the federal court for like close to eight to ten years, and I couldn't. I, I didn't see her all the time, but I couldn't say a word to her. All right, because I knew she was the one who was going to make the final determination if they were settling. But when they settled, I, I said, Judge Bass, can I tell you something? I said, yeah, I represented Matthias Reyes. She looks at me, you know, and we had dinner together. We had a nice conversation. Um, but I don't think even she was convinced of what I was saying about Steve Lopez. But she was a very nice lady. I sent her a copy of my, my first book. Um, anyway. Uh, right. Well, so, you had, I mean, you finish off your book with your curious uh, confrontation with uh, Lopez. Do you want to talk yeah, about that? Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't know whether to go back up to talk to Reyes or not, even if. Reyes was in Auburn prison. Um, 
I had a serial killer up there named Joseph Christopher, and you know, and I used to go back there, and I knew the deputy warden who I went to high school with, but his name was Christopher wouldn't see me because he didn't trust lawyers. I said, well, just let me, Bobby, just let me put him in a room and let me talk at him. He wouldn't even let me do that. So I, I remember ha- having that. Then if I actually remember what he did to me in the last day we saw each other, now would, would he open up to me? I don't know. So I didn't, I didn't bother to go up there. Um, but I did uh, find where Steve Reyes, uh, Steve Lopez was living through the investigator who was hired, was a very good friend of mine, who was hired by the, uh, one of the, uh, uh, one of the lawyers uh, for the, and uh, the civil case that was being handled in the federal court. He found Lopez, and the Central Park Five were really angry with him because Lopez wouldn't cooperate. So, but we did. My investigator. This is a few years later now. Retraced the steps and we found where Lopez lived. I won't say exactly where because when I got there, there were toys around. So Lopez has kids, so I didn't realize. So anyway, so we, I formulate my strategy. And Mike, uh, Mike Barry is the name of the uh, investigator. You know, I, we park around the corner. We live this, this is out on Long Island, and we parked around the corner. And we're talking about how we're going to approach this. So we go up to the, the house, ring the doorbell. This uh, middle-aged woman, maybe her late thirties, comes to the door, and I sort of broke the rule. I, I broke uh, the rule about what we were going to do. I, I said, "Is Steve here?" That's all I said, and her jaw dropped. Her eyes opened and she turned pale. And she, she didn't exactly say he didn't live here or he wasn't here, something like that. So, so we're very nice. And my, my investigator said, Mike said, well, do you know who owned the house beforehand and all this? So we had like a 30 second to one minute conversation. We were very polite. All of a sudden from the background, we hear, shut the door, male voice. And so Mike and I look at each other and sort of wink, but that's Steve. So we left. We were very polite, you know. We we didn't want to bother uh, the woman and the door shut. And so we walked down the driveway uh, and we we're about 30 feet in front of the house. And I noticed these two trucks were parked like that. I put in my book, like guided missiles, like could be controlled by remote control, you know, to the SUV trucks. And um, uh, so Mike decides he's going to stop and take the license plate and run the plates, see if they come back to Lopez. As we were doing that, the door flies open to the house. Now we're 30 feet in front of the house, maybe 25, 30 feet front of the house standing on the sidewalk and all of a sudden what the fuck are you doing here this this guy comes out his he's bald but he's very light skinned he's, he's almost as white as me and uh uh but he has a uh he you know he's, his hair is trimmed around the side but he's bald on the top and i and uh and he says and so mike says but listen we're standing on public property which you were on, on the sidewalk he really was in it. He really got hot. And he says, get the off my fucking property. And that's when Mike says, we're standing on public property. And we're not on your property like that. He just looks at it, glares at us, goes back inside the house. And I said, Mike, that's got to be Lopez. Well, why? Who would get upset at the mere mention of his name? We didn't say anything to him. I, I wanted to talk to him. Were you there? Did you know Matthias Reyes ahead of time? So as I put in my book, I said, now, Mike was, had played devil's advocate saying it was only my client's uh, DNA that was found on the jogger and all this other stuff. I said, well, Mike, okay, uh, you, you have your opinion. Then he, he changed his opinion that one action, who was the guy who was more than likely Steve Lopez, because when I showed my investigator, was, he went to lunch in a place nearby. I showed him a copy of the, the picture number three, which mm-hmm. has his head. Mm-hmm. And, so my, and so Mike says, that's him. He has the same head. You know, the guy's bald now. That's 30 years later. 
and the curls are all gone. But that's him. I said, I know that's him. I said, his actions spoke volumes. I didn't have to interview him. And wow. so, uh, so that that absolutely convinced me that it was Lopez. And so we we drove away, uh, and I and I finished writing the book. Now this, I I confronted him uh, in December of 2018, just before Christmas. So that's when I, I then I finished up the book with an afterword, and then I, I tried to get uh, it's, it's it's published on Amazon. Uh, sure. No nobody would touch it, you know. So uh, you know, in terms of a, a publisher. So well, we're uh, at so, 60. so that's. We're at 60 minutes, Richard. Is there anything else okay. that you'd like to add or anything I missed? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the three things, uh, the rape that happened two days before on April 19th, April 17th, uh, that was never really investigated by the police. There was something that the police also screwed up very badly. Uh, they, they left a card in the door. She goes back. She calls them up. The cops didn't because there was – there was a fight between the the, the 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 sex crimes division and the trial division, and actually P. Casalero, who was my adversary for Reyes's case, actually had the Central Bar Jagger case first off. But Linda Fairstein, the author, who's you know, whose reputation has also been besmirched by uh, uh, what's her name Duvernay, Duvernay along with uh, uh, along with uh, Elizabeth Letter, who was a great attorney. Oh, okay. Anyway, right. I, I said they they didn't they didn't investigate. Had they investigated that? They probably would have made if if Casalero had stayed with the case, he would have made the he would have tested Reyes DNA in 1990. But since they went to the sex crimes unit, no, Nary the Twain shall meet. You know they hated each other. You know they they had homicide cops working with the sex crimes division as a compromise. So everything got really really fouled up. But that's all they had to do was investigate that case and run my client's DNA when they were supposed to. Everything would have changed. Wow. Okay, that was a great, is a great interview, great book. Again, the title of the book is Your Eyes or Your Life, The True Story of the Central Park Jogger Rapist by Richard Syracuse, spelled S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, published June 6, 2019. Richard, thank you very much. Okay, so long, William. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're the kind of person who makes a difference at work. So why not work on something that makes a difference? At Zooks, we're looking for collaborative, inquisitive people who can help us achieve our mission. Safer, cleaner, more enjoyable mobility for everyone. Come build the future at Zooks. Find out more at zoox.com slash careers. For 40 years, Michael Myers has haunted this town. Is the essence of evil, and evil dies tonight. Halloween Kills, rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, in theaters and streaming only on Peacock now.